This is a Pound the Rock podcast show. While the Uncle Nearest team is in quarantine, we have been producing regular broadcasts on our Instagram, on our Facebook, and in live Zoom webinars. We have decided to take those shows and bring them here to you on the podcast channel. We hope you enjoy. Everybody, welcome to Mondays with All Things Nearest. I am Sailor, the Uncle Nearest Market Manager for the PNW, and I am here with two amazing whiskey family members, and that would be Nick Griffith, who's in Southern California, and one of my favorite people ever in whiskey, Miss Sherry Moore, who is our Director of Whiskey Production at the Nearest Green Distillery. Hi, everybody. Hi, Sherry. Hello. So exciting to have you with us. Um, you are in, as most people can see, if they're wondering where you are and the beautiness <laughs> that is behind you. Um, I'm sure we'd all love to say that's your living room, but um, <laughs> you're Home in collection. Very know, right? <laughs> you're in the welcome house um, at our distillery in Tennessee. Yes. Very, very cool. I love that background. Beats mine. How's the weather in Tennessee right now, Sherry? I've been in the yard digging and working in my flowers, so that is a good sign. We're up in the um, 70s today. <gasps> oh, it's warmer there than it is in LA. Wow. Yes, yes. <laughs> Definitely warmer than here in Washington, <laughs> that's for sure. <laughs> yeah, you oh, have, uh, what, is, uh, what is it called? It's um, winter. Winter. Yes, that's, that's, that's yeah. indeed what it's called. It's called winter that, <laughs> that doesn't want to end. <laughs> Not very familiar with it. Shut up. <laughs> so Sherry, we are so, so excited to be able to talk with you. Like uh, a lot of people are familiar with Fawn because Fawn's very much like kind of the, the, the face of this company. Mm -hmm. uh, she's out there in the, in the market a lot and in the media a lot. And you, you are like the, the secret little behind the scenes <laughs> puppet master of, of all things whiskey for us. So can you tell us a little bit about your background and how you got your start in this industry? Well, I've, I've always had a career of being in the background, and it's where I thrive the best. Uh, a little bit about me. I started in 1975 at Jack Daniels Distillery. Uh, I was, had an academic scholarship, and I needed money, so I got a job on the summers and weekends at Jack Daniels while I was in college. And then when I graduated, uh, there was an opening in quality control, and so I went there. So I started in 75 and stayed over 31 years. So I started making lemonade at the visitor center. <laughs> I and, didn't know that. I love that. Yes. The hard yes. lemonade or like lemonade for everybody? <laughs> I started with lemonade and ended up as, as director of whiskey operations there. So when I, when I left, I had the uh, charcoal mellowing operation, making of the uh, charcoal that operation, the distillery, the byproducts, uh, all of the barrel warehousing and what we call process and where you dump the whiskey and you mingle it together. And I had quality control and environmental. And I even had the fire department. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Wow. <laughs> and, um, it was very. Didn't you, didn't I hear that you either sat on or still sit on a board for something like the U.S. filtration something? I'm not on it now, but I was on the uh, American Filtration Society. <laughs> this is a lively group of people talking about diatomaceous earth, uh, filter pads, different grades of filter pads. And yeah, yeah, it was an exciting group of people. I was the treasurer. <laughs> See, I just that, imagine that. a bunch of a bunch of people being like, "Your Brita sucks, man." I know. It's like arguing <laughs> at home water filtration. Yes, yes, but but I think that one really qualifies that I fall under the nerd category. Yes, I would. <laughs> yeah. I would agree. But that. So when I heard that, I got so excited. I'm like, I want to know what I want to hear. I want to be at those things because I'm also yeah. in the nerd category. Mm -hmm. I get really excited about that. People are like, "What are you talking about?" <laughs> Yeah, now that was an outside organization, and one of the organizations, though, a committee in Brown Foreman, the corporation owns Jack Daniels, that I got to be part of was the maturation committee, Ooh. and that one was good because one of the things that was unique about Brown Foreman, which is going to help us here at Uncle Nearest, is having the, uh, they own their own cookery. 
So we have what we call the maturation committee, and we studied all things barrel, maturation, barrel warehousing. So that was a good uh, committee for me to be on and to get to learn some things because we were toasting barrels before anybody else was really toasting bourbon barrels and did a lot of studies on those. And we also looked, it was more about the barrel and the dumping, but we kept probably two to 3,000 barrels uh, doing a maturation study on it, watching it mm -hmm. at one years old, two years old. One of the things that we did one time was to try to reduce the angel share is we sprayed the barrels with the wax that goes on apples. Oh, wow. And we were going to see if it would still breathe and age, but if it would reduce that angel share. So we sprayed the barrels. Those things were so slick. When you have a 525 pound <laughs> barrel of whiskey with wax on it, oh my God. I, I can't oh, even tell you. Out there. <laughs> oh my gosh. It's just a wonder we didn't kill anybody. I was so glad that that it did not work because I don't know how we would have ever managed to spray. You would have to put, did not work. You would have to put a big wrapper around it, right? Like on the bottle well, top also, so that you can pull it around. Yeah, we also uh, did some shrink wrap on barrels. <laughs> We also did shrink wrap on barrels. So got to be involved with a lot of studies wow. like that and uh, worked with Lincoln Henderson. He was on that committee and wow. many of you'll know him as he's the one that started Angel Envy. Mm -hmm. So we were finishing barrels in the different finishes then. So that was a good part of my education. That sounds so, that, 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 I want that job, number one, um, when I retire from being a brand ambassador, because that's right up my alley. I remember hearing, and, and you and I have spoken a lot about Jimmy Russell, who is the master distiller for Wild Turkey and the oldest master distiller in the world at the moment. Um, yes. He, I remember when I was early on in my whiskey education, I became enamored with him talking about how he seasoned his barrels. And it made me understand that process further. So just like what you're talking about, understanding maturation, you know, this is a this is a tried and tested process when every distiller or director of whiskey production um, says, this is how I want my barrels treated before the whiskey even goes in it. That alone is so fascinating. You know, uh, there uh, we had the different warehouses in you know, we would chart them so I could tell which warehouses were up on a hill, which ones were in the valley, what was going to happen in the first floor, what was going to happen on the fourth floor. So that whole process is just amazing. The other one, though, that is equally amazing is you can go into the same warehouse, the same floor, same exact whiskey, and the barrel right beside the other one will have a different profile. Same whiskey, same location, but then the variance with that barrel. Because if you go back to the barrel, it is how long were those stays? How long were they seasoned? Was it three months? Was it six months, nine months, 24? And we did a lot of that tracking. So now I know. I, so cool. I guess I was just no, naturally nosy, you know? So all that just intrigued me. I love like, that. Well, why? Naturally well, nosy. I, I hope that I eventually become mature enough to join a maturation board. I don't think that ever happened. Uh, but I do want to ask you, just to clear, clarify for anybody who's uh -huh. watching who's not mm -hmm. hyper familiar with the industry and how this process works, when we talk about seasoning barrels, we're not talking about throwing whiskey in there to let them soak up first. <laughs> we're not talking about seasoning them with cognac first. We're talking about heating them up, right? Now, we didn't heat, I'm not, I, we haven't done much studies on the heating up. When we called it seasoning, in my term that we use was, how many summers and winters did it go through? It's just a whole, because for four years, if you had really hot summers, then that whiskey during its four, five or six years may have a more, um, gone into the wood and extracted out more, mm -hmm. be more complex. So and another time, if you just had a real uh, mild summer and a real cold winter, you may not get as much flavor development. So that's when we talked about seasoning was just keeping up with what, what is happening with that. What's the humidity? What's the temperature in the warehouse? So this it's allowing the barrel, or sorry, the wood, just like you do for your firewood. You don't want to you, you don't want to burn green wood, right? Because it doesn't smell good. It doesn't burn well. Mm -hmm. um, so you want to 
just again, like firewood, you choose certain types of wood that are better for burning. And so you're subjecting this wood to the elements to get it to a certain place where you go, okay, now this is ready. And so we in can... the process, it goes from tree to cut down, cut into staves, and that's where you allow it to be seasoned, right? It's in these little planks before it turns into a barrel, just yeah. sitting outside or in a kiln. <laughs> in a temperature controlled room, something like that. You're exactly right, Nick. That is the okay. process. And then once that barrel, uh, the staves have stayed outside in season and the rain coming down, the sun on it. And then, of course, the ones at the, stop, the top of the stack are going to season different than the ones at the bottom. So that's why even those same rick of staves, you're still going to get a different kind of barrel even though they aged at a different rate or they, they stayed outside in season at the so same rate. They're going to have a different one. Yeah. There's so many things. It's such a rabbit hole because then you think about what you just said and you put them in a barrels and then you put the same, you're putting the same whiskey in. And then a minute ago you said, so in, in most people I'm sure have been now to Rick houses or seen the warehouses. You have a top floor, a bottom floor, a middle and every Everyone who's in charge of this whiskey while it's laying down, they all know things about these areas. And we all hear you guys talk about, this is my favorite, A, Rick House, this is my favorite floor level, whatever. But then you take the whiskey out and it's all different. You have different yeah. nuances. And so then that comes to the whole rabbit hole of blending, which I'm also obsessed with. Um, <laughs> we to do get a whole a, show a, just on barrels. <laughs> oh my God. But to get a consistent product. So like every bottle that's behind you of that, let's say, you know, you for, and for Jack Daniels, well, every, it has to taste the same every time, but we're getting all these barrels come out with different flavors and it depends on what kind of seasons have we had while they've been laying down and then you have to get that to taste the same. That to me is, that's a feat. It, it is. It, it's fun though. It's fun. It's fun tracking it because you're going to track those barrels during it, the maturation. Most of the time you're going to check it at like at every two year intervals. And then here at the end, you may be pulling samples and doing more, but it, it's fun to see that. And you know, the other one that I think is, really uh, interesting and, and this kind of comes in with us designing our distillery is and, and not many people think about it but a lot of your consistency if you know what you're doing your consistency starts on how you pop how you come out of the steel how it goes through charcoal mellowing how it goes through the tanks so with us I would like for us to have 14 maybe 14 distillation days going into a single barrel so you're not going from okay tuesday's distillation one very good but we're going to put it up wednesday's is not very good and so you can have that difference but by us doing this pop in on our tanks and the way we hold the whiskey before we go in the barrel we're going to start with a more consistent product going in the barrel so we're doing like pre-blending so before aging it is it is so, is that common? I don't think it is. No, I don't think so. I don't, I don't think, think so. so, but it is. It is. Now, uh, the risk with it is um, you have to define your popping system so that if you do, do a certain mash bill, that you can isolate it. You know, because you may want to go, okay, we're going to do this certain mash bill. And so you've got to have your popping so you can oscillate that. And you can still get that distinct. But for everyday production, for that consistency, you want the different distillate dates in there. Mm -hmm. And that is the one thing that the Tennessee whiskey process does. The way it goes through charcoal mellowing. Y'all tell me if I'm getting out. But with no, I love it. bourbon <laughs> and any other whiskey, it, it's really going from the steel it's been distilled and then it's put in a barrel. Mm -hmm. Ours is completely different. It is going to go from the steel, then it's going to go through charcoal mellowing. And that's going to be that slow process of going through 13 feet of charcoal. Then the way we have our tanks, you're going to have a mingling, you may say, of different distillate going into the charcoal mellowing vat or coming out the bottom. And then when you have your tanks, and let's say you've got three tanks, and instead of having 
it go to this tank, then this tank, and then this tank. I will have them pot so that it goes into all three tanks at the same time. So those three tanks, it's just spreading out those dates. That's so cool. And I, I, I like to think that, and so I'll finally ask you, I've never got to ask you this question. So, so often I look at craft distillers and although their job is much more difficult for a myriad of reasons, one being money, um, mm-hmm. and, and there's got, there's a lot of, you have to be very brave, you know, to, to do something like that. But they kind of, if they, if they come from, let's say a distilling background, they can kind of plan out their dream distillery, right? And their dream process. Because if you've worked for another brand prior, that, you know, there are certain things that you, you this is how we make our whiskey and that's it. Mm-hmm. And you can put your own stamp on it to a point, but I'm sure there were many things previously that you wanted to do, but that wasn't really their process or their profile, whatever. So my big question to you is, um, so we're starting from fresh, right? With the nearest green distillery. Are you getting to do some of the things that you've always wanted to do? And I had a feeling and knew best, especially because I think the genius thing here is that Fawn doesn't come, you know, our founders don't come from the whiskey business originally. So I think you get probably even more room to say, I truly am the expert and this is why I want to build it this way. Mm-hmm. I'm going to kind of answer that in two parts. One thing is you refer to the craft distilleries, and some of them did have some distillery background. A lot of them are learning it, and I have so much admiration for them for that. But I feel like that uh, if anybody's read the book Outlier, I Mm -hmm. was an outlier. I came in the business at such a good time because I got to work with people with no formal education, but they had 30 plus years. Our average seniority when I started there was over 30 years. Wow. So I was with people with no formal education, but they go, something smell right over there. Here, do you hear that? That pump's (laughs) going to go out. So I got that education from people that knew whiskey that had been in those warehouses day in and day out. Mm-hmm. They've been in the distillery. They didn't have all the controls, but they, with their nose, they could tell exactly what was going on. And I also was part of a corporation that owned their own cooperage mm-hmm. and had this maturation committee. They had people with doctorates in chemistry. They had people with doctorates in R&D. So I got to be in this just perfect little role of talking with the people with experience. And talking with the people with the technical. So I could go over there to the guy with no education, formal education, and I go, now tell me what, what do you think is going on in this warehouse? And then we could pull samples and I could work with the R&D group. And we would figure out, well, you know what, the humidity is too high in here. And we would find out that there was more moisture in there that should be. And we would be coming up with a way to ventilate the basement of that warehouse. So I, I feel like I came in at such a good time, and that ties in with Uncle Nearest, is I've had exposure to the R&D department, but I've also had exposure to the people with no formal education that knew how to do it. And one of the things that oh, was my, my favorite compliment when I got to Jack Daniels, I'd, well, not when I got there, but I had a few years in, and they were leery of anybody with a college education. And this one guy came to me and he goes, I just heard the biggest lie. And I said, what's that? So they said that you had a college degree. And I said, hell no, she ain't been to college. She's got some common sense. (laughs) So I felt like I had a right. I love that. So you get the street cred and the professional cred, right? (laughs) Yeah. I was just like, I made it. You know, he he assumed I wasn't a complete idiot. That's so great. But that allowed me to learn things from them. Mm-hmm. And then work with R and D group, and that's where we set up a lot of experiments there. And uh, because of the different things, I've especially studied on barrels, looking at the humidity in warehouses, the temperature on the different floors, uh, kind of the airflow in there. I'm excited. Uh, I feel like our first 
10 plus years are really R and D. Mm -hmm. Everything that we have aging will be R and D. And that is exciting to me. I got to jump in here real quick because I've been dying Uh to ask you, um, since we're talking about when you got your start, um, you know, 1975, it's a, pretty dark time for whiskey and bourbon as a whole in the country. You know, we're coming out of the 60s and, you know, everybody's on this vodka, gin kick, and, you know, all the hippies want to, like... Blended Scotch, blended Canadian. So American whiskey is... Parents drink to the curb, basically. (laughs) Um, What was that like for you coming in, in that environment? Do you feel like you had more leeway because people were just like, yeah, do whatever you want to. Like, this industry's possibly dying. What was that well, like? Uh, I think there were, uh, and I can kind of answer that on two ways. And even though I was just a college student and working on summers and weekends, but it was good to be part of the marketing just for that short period of time and see what they were doing with their consumer experience. You know, because they were kind of the leaders in that, is getting people to come visit the distillery in the 70s like so it was good to see that they found the way is with the consumer is stick to the basics. We're real people making real whiskey and it's hands-on and it's handcrafted. And we also, to your point, had that lead way to be testing these things. How can we, you know, get ready for the next boom? You know, it's when one of the things that's interesting is when I started, and I know no distillers are this way, is we had one day a month that was export, and everybody was like, oh my gosh, next Tuesday is export day. <laughs> we dreaded, but we were just getting into that market of exporting and getting American whiskey out of this country. Wow. And, and so it's also fun to be part of that and see how that has grown over the years and how American whiskey and how Tennessee whiskey has gone worldwide. Mm-hmm. So I think, again, they were very smart to go in because of what was happening in the U.S. is to be getting into these other markets. Now, mm-hmm. can you explain... You have a, a slight connection to the Jack family, correct? <laughs> yeah. You want to expound on that for people that don't know? I know. I need a chart up here to do a board, <laughs> my family tree. Um, Ancestry.com uh, next yeah, year. Yeah. Uh, of course, we know uh, who Jack Daniels is, and he didn't have any children. So his nephew, and I feel like this is the closest connection, his nephew is Lim Motlow. And uh, Lim was my great-great-uncle. And uh, his family and mine were close. Uh, his, he had died before I was born, but his wife, Anna Ophelia, she lived till I was in my 20s. And then her sister was Miss Mary Bobo that runs the boarding house. A lot of people have come to Lynchburg to eat there at Miss Mary Bobo's boarding house. So because they they've lived, been rolled out. <laughs> yeah. Yes. So, so the families stay together when the, you know, families tend to drift when that oldest relative dies. Mm-hmm. But with our family, they we stayed close. You know, we still have pictures from her 99th birthday where both sides of the family were getting together for Mom Bobo. Uh, Lim had uh, five children. One was his uh, one was a daughter that you don't see much. She always stayed in the background. But see, she lived to be 105, and she she just died in 17. Wow. So spent time with her. So, you know, it's just a good connection. So, yes, that the Motlows are my family. And uh, how I got my job, I've ne- one of the other things is I've never put in a resume or a job <laughs> application. Uh, I know. I was looking friend. for one for you, by the way, just for this interview. And you are yeah. a ghost. There is no information about you. Yes. <laughs> no. no is my great-grandmother wanted me to come live with her at the boarding house when I graduated from high school. And I said, well, if I could get a job over here, I would. I lived about 20 miles from there. And the next day, they called. And so I got a job. And then when I graduated, I didn't fill out an application, but I had uh, called. We didn't even have a, a human resource department at that time, but I had called the plant manager's secretary and I said, you know, I'm out of college if there's any job openings. Well, about three weeks later, 
she called me and she said, Mr. Richards has a question for you. He was the general manager. And I answered that. And then about three weeks after that, I've got a call and it says, be at quality control next Monday. You're starting full time. Oh, wow. I never had an interview with him. Never. <laughs> I mean, these people knew me, but I never sat down for an interview. And the manager of quality control, he just inherited me. He did not pick me out. <laughs> he that's just amazing. got me. So that's, that's kind of how I got there is a little bit of that family connection. Then I think uh, it, that kind of ties in is I was always, as I said earlier, I was always so nosy and curious. <laughs> and so the good thing about quality control is you get into every department. And so I learned real fast to do my essential work and get it done. And my goofing off wanted to sneak over to Facebook. My goofing off was to go stay in the dump room where we're dumping the barrels and go, what are you doing? Why are you doing it that way? Why does that barrel look different from this one? Why does this one got rust on it? This one doesn't have any rust on the barrel hooks. So just that natural. So my goof off was to go into other departments and just kind of hang out and talk to these people and ask questions. I love that so much. So I went from family to, to goofing off. So I understand goofing off, but I was lucky things that I was haven't changed. I goofed up. Yeah, things haven't changed. Everybody goofed off. That's amazing. Now, how did you, how did you come to meet the, uh, the Weavers? Well, I had retired uh, from Jack Daniels. I just, I worked there, you know, since I was 18. And when you've got an operation that's seven days a week, 24 hours a day, and you have nerve tendencies, you can work way too much. <laughs> so uh, I retired early. I thought I need to just kind of enjoy life. So the first year I didn't do anything. Uh, I look at it now and I go, I, I took a sabbatical because when people would ask me what I was doing, I go, nothing. They gave me this pitiful look, like <laughs> you need to be doing something. What, have, what value are you? So I started saying sabbatical and people gave me this look of respect, you know, sabbaticals. If you ever retire early, just say you're on a sabbatical. It, it goes so much better. I love well, it. then I decided to get in real estate because it would give me some flexibility. So I was uh, selling real estate. And my sons and I had a concrete company and done different things. So I was selling real estate. My cousin called me and she would be Lynn's granddaughter. And she said, there's two people here from California and they're investigating, researching the story of Uncle Nearest, which of course I was very familiar with. And she said, the Dan Call farm where Jack and Nearest were is for sale. And I told them about it. And so why don't you show that property to them? And she said, I'm leaving town. So she met them on day one when they came to Tennessee to research the story. I met them on day two. And she said, I'm going out of town. So make sure they get connected to the right people. So that's how I met the Weavers. Is I was showing them that <laughs> property. And I always like it. It's I've heard Fawn say it before, and, and I know it sounds funny to people that we, when they found out she was starting a whiskey business, they'd say, well, you don't know anything about whiskey operations. And she goes, oh, we're using our real estate agent. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Oh, we we, just, we skipped opinion. right over the fact that you owned a concrete company as well. We're just going <laughs> to let that go. <laughs> I know concrete too. <laughs> Now, had you been to that house before? Were you familiar with all the history of the Dan Call Farm prior? Yes, and um, it's one of those that, you know, embarrassingly, sadly, uh, we all knew the story. It just didn't get communicated to the rest of the world. Mm. So very familiar, familiar with the family. Um, Victoria, who's our master blender, she and I, her sister is same age as me. She's younger than me, but we hung out together as kids. I worked with uh, her uncle, and this would be Nearest Green's great-grandson, Bus Edie. Worked with him and very close with him. And I hired uh, her brother there. And so, so very connected, and everybody knew the story. 
And so when but we you, say this is a story that's gone full circle, which come full circle, which is what we all, I'm sure, say, we hopefully the the people watching this understand we really mean that that you know it's literally because now you and victoria are working together to make whiskey yes. with nearest name on it just like you know nearest and jack work together to make whiskey with yes. jack's name on it it's that's it's it's a little bit sometimes like you know mm -hmm. i can see it happen in people's faces when we talk about it you can't make this stuff up no you, you can't. can't no yeah. no 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 you you have hired and trained a lot of the people that are currently in charge at Jack Daniels. Oh yeah, yes, and, and I work with oh my God. I work with Larry Combs. He's the general manager. I work with Larry when he was an intern, and I have to say, Larry Combs is probably the smartest person I know in the business. Probably the smartest. His Larry. Uh, engineering degree and R and D. He he is brilliant. He and I did a lot of projects together. Wow. You know, you, you may be in the background, but you're definitely, when your name comes up and people have heard of you, mm -hmm. people's eyes light up. They're like, oh, <laughs> how, how did you get Sherry Moore? Mm -hmm. um, so you, you've become this icon and this hero in the industry. Who did oh, yes. you look up to when you were coming in? Who were your heroes and your icons? Uh, I, I think I had several because there weren't any women, mm -hmm. you know, in the business. It's mm -hmm. nothing like that. But I think that if it was, um, I worked with Greg Snyder, who's now, uh, he went on to be the manager at Wild Turkey. But Greg and I, when it came to barrels, he was the one that I kind of learned from, helped. And, uh, so in the different phases, I had different people, but probably what helped me the most was I ended up, I don't know if this, but I got an executive coach. The company hired an executive coach for me. And so that probably helped me more than anything is having that person that kind of give me the strategy to get some projects approved. So that was a big help for me. So I'd always kept a list of things I wanted to do and ideas I wanted to implement. But as you said earlier, it's hard in a large company to get these projects implemented. So that probably helped me more than anything. I think the one thing that helped me though is I was so busy and I was probably so small-minded in some ways that I had no idea that I was the first woman <laughs> in production. <laughs> I didn't even know. And I think because I started there. So Are you young, talking about just in Jack Daniels or no. in the industry? Well, you know, at, at Jack Daniels, but as the biggest change in the whiskey when I came back from retirement and coming back in was finding out now it's cool to have a woman <laughs> where I was always kind of held in the background mm -hmm. and which I was fine with because I was a production person. I didn't want to be out on the road, but they did an ad campaign with me at Jack and then they pulled it back because they decided the world wasn't ready to know there was a woman in operation. Oh, oh. <laughs> wow. And I didn't care. I didn't care, you know, because I was happy to be in, in there. I was glad to help Jimmy as he went out and then I get to stay in there with all the smells and the uh, taste. So <laughs> when... I was um, introduced to this brand. It was a, a minute before uh, I don't remember who finally told me. Oh, and you know Sherry Moore, our director of whiskey program. And I was like, oh, what? Are you kidding me? So for me, when I met you, it was very exciting um, because you were someone that I could look up to, even though I didn't have a chance to meet you or see you in person. Just knowing for me, hey, there are women doing this that long ago was really, really important. Uh, probably crucial, to be honest. Thinking like, well, you can get that far if you really want to, and this woman did it. Started with lemonade and ended <laughs> up with whiskey. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> of course it was lemonade. Of course it was. <laughs> you know, the one of the other things that probably helped me, they had some kind of little something going on at the company and uh, uh, quality control manager wanted to do something different and he switched me to hourly. 
Mm. And I didn't want to move and, you know, relocate. And I thought, well, this would be a good opportunity. And so I worked two hours, uh, two years as an hourly worker. So I was in process. And so I was picking up 50 pound bags of this, you know, which is a little different than just testing in QC. I was actually hands on with the whiskey. And that was a good education for me to understand that. And I earned some respect with employees Mm -hmm. because, and even though some of them knew I'd been to college, I, I rolled up my sleeves Mm -hmm. uh, and I went out there and worked. I understood that if somebody, you're going to ask the employee to work overtime, you need to give them as much notice as you can. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And to be, uh, show respect because every job takes a certain level of skill and I think that I have me having respect for them it developed a respect and an openness to where I learned a lot from those people with no formal education because they saw me work too mm-hmm. one of the brand ambassadors went with me when I visited about three distilleries it was all set up and we do the backdoor tours you know to where the uh, distillery manager was taking you around and seeing the boilers, the chillers, the neutralization tanks, you know, all, and it was one brand ambassador. He goes, I had no idea there was this much unsexy about making whiskey. <laughs> and I go, Oh, there's a whole lot unsexy. The steel is really cool. It's really sexy, but there is a lot of stuff going on in the background that is not sexy <laughs> at all. I think that's something that a lot of people actually don't realize is yeah. they hear the term master distiller or director of whiskey operations, and they think you're the person that's sitting next to the big copper pot and you're checking mm-hmm. things off your list and, you know, checking the wind <laughs> and, you know, then you drink whiskey at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. That is not your job at all. That is yeah. one small facet of what you do. It's one, and not to take away from that, but it is putting systems in place. It's making sure that you're gathering the data. One of the things that, uh, and Jack Daniels is where we would get that, is if you ask me, on the barrels on entry day, we wrote down and we took count of how many wormholes were in the barrels, how many crow's leaks were there, how many leaks did we have in the barrel, what repairs did we have to make, to where I could have pulled out April 4th, 1985, and I could have told you how many wormholes were in a barrel. Wow. And all that doesn't sound, and that's some of the unsexy part, but over time, the trend, and to see the correlation between, and it's not that it's the wormholes, but the wormholes are an indicator of the quality of the wood. Mm-hmm. That by seeing how many wormholes, if we saw that there were problems putting the heads in, then we could almost look at what our yield was going to be, kind of what's that quality, how do you relate that? So there's a lot of tedious things like that that need to be tracked. Uh, always doing the color analysis on the whiskey as it's aging so that we can see over time what has that color done in the last 20 years. So for us, and that, that's one of the things that I want to bring to Uncle Nero is that we're going to be tracking. We're already tracking those things. We are tracking those things, and it is crucial rather than 20 years later you go, oh, my gosh, we need to look. And see, it seems like Sunday's whiskey is darker than it used to be. Well, mm-hmm. we're going to be tracking that from the beginning. So there's a lot of systems that have to be in place, a lot of boring data collection, putting in a system, pulling out the right trending, so, and trying to figure out where are the correlations. Mm-hmm. What, what does that quality of that barrel? And what we found is it, it impacted the yield probably more than but if you don't collect the data, then you can't go back and analyze it and make your process better. You can't go in and see those improvements. How old was that wood? You know, how long had it seasoned? Are we finding that the 12 months? So there is a lot of boring things that go with it. And the, the process is to where we're doing the same thing every time. Uh, setting up the distillery and designing it to where it will still be hands-on. But the more data that we can give the distiller operator, the better the whiskey is going to be. Here's the temperature. Here's where we're going to have a temperature probe. This is where we're going to have this. And what's the steam pressure? So the the more information like that that you have, then you do a better job with the craft part. Mm -hmm. Because you can never know everything that needs to be known. Mm -hmm. 
You can never gather every bit of the data. But the more information that you give your operators and the better decisions they're going to make, that's when they apply their craft. So when I hear somebody going, oh, well, we're not going to automate, I look at it totally different. No, we're not going to completely automate, but the more data we can collect, the more testing we can do during fermentation, then we can make a more consistent product. Mm -hmm. And what are those parameters that we want to do? And then you're going to have to chart it and you'll have to look at it over the next well, this is what this year did. And you might be comparing June to June. You may be comparing March to March, or maybe it's like you're, so you're also sitting down and going, what are the correlations? Is there another piece of data that we need to have? When we're designing the computer system, uh, oh, and just a little bit about my education, I would like to tell you that I had this strong focus that, I knew what I wanted to do in my life, and I was going to be the first woman in the distilled spirits industry, or Jack Daniels. But instead, I was one of those people that changed their major, like every semester. You know, I went to engineering. I might have done that for two semesters. I even took why I went into ag and took animal science, soil science, and plant science. Had a ball, but you know, well. <laughs> And of course, I was always taking chemistry classes because I was going to be a chemical engineer. Then I was, I don't know why I went. You got to know about concrete field. too. <laughs> I know, and I went to concrete. Well, then I um, get to that last year. I'm going, oh my gosh, I have got to get out of here because I don't have any money. I can't keep doing this. So I get out of school, just rake this together and get out. But I had one of the classes I had was computer programming and when I was in my engineering phase <laughs> and, and, and I aggravated the engineers because I was not an engineer, but I knew enough to go, you can calculate this for me. <laughs> I don't, I don't remember how, but I can get you to calculate it. I just knew enough to be irritating probably. But on the, when we were setting up the programming for the barrels and the barrel storage, I kind of took that over into making sure that we were collecting every bit of that so I could pull out reports and I could show every third floor warehouse. I could show every tier because what we have uh, then and you in different uh, gym beams the same way, you're going to have some four floor warehouses, you're going to have some six floors some seventh floor different styles, especially the older ones. And I could pull out and I could compare the third floor that were up on the hills. And I could compare those to the third floor that were more, uh, the warehouses were spaced closer together because that changes your airflow around there. Mm -hmm. So again, that just, I just talk about that because it's gonna help us on our first thing on data collection. Because the only way you can make a good decision is to have good data collection and you're going to have to build that into your system, in your computer system on how you do your barrels so that we can go in there and put all this quality information. We can put the color and we can analyze it. I'm getting so nerdy. I am sorry. <laughs> I, so I we love, love it. it. We love the it. whiskey nerds are going to flip out over this. So one of the things that I, that I'm hearing you say, is confirming some of the things you already know how my brain works when it comes to the whiskey business. So my first thought was, okay, so we have someone that worked for a major brand and probably had more tools at their disposal than most. That is that it has the opportunity to start from the beginning using all of that knowledge, right? So we're going to get I would say this is quite unprecedented how our distillery is being built and how we are approaching the whiskey. Although we are sourcing at the moment, although we are um, doing things, a you know, a little bit similar to some of the, you know, brands that just start out before they have their own juice, we are absolutely unique and unprecedented in the in the way that we are not a small craft distillery that's just gonna kind of learn as we go and start we mm -hmm. started off mm -hmm. as a major brand and that's what we are building and we yes we are building a new uh expression but the experience you have the understanding you have to come into this not just as like oh let me consult 
you know, you can hire these consulting companies these days if you're, if you're Crass Distillery, but you're the one that is driving this process for this new brand. This is totally unprecedented in the American whiskey market. And in, I would say in American whiskey history, the way we are approaching building the nearest green distillery and rolling out our whiskey. Do you agree with that? I agree. I think the one uh, advantage we have, and it's just where things have changed before, you really had to have an R&D department, mm -hmm. which you can't hardly do with the size we are. But there are outside labs now that mm -hmm. you can send the product to. Mm -hmm because of all the other craft distilleries, just some of them don't know what to really ask for, or they test it just twice a year rather than routinely, but getting the GC analysis on the distillate. But I do think we're going to come in and have the best of both, kind of that hybrid, is we're going to have a lot of hands-on, and we're going to be at a level that we can experiment, we're new, we can experiment, we can try some things, but we're going to be collecting data, we're going to be setting everything up. Our systems are going to be set up. Our quality systems are going to be set up. Our data collection systems are going to be set up, I think, at one of the major brand levels. The other one is um, so many of the distilleries on opportunities, so many of the distilleries, they've already got a building there, and they're trying to retrofit. Right. And they're making the pipes work. And... Uh, by building your own building, then you're able to lay your piping out and you build your building around your piping. And that might sound small, but it is huge. Then, because I don't care what the building looks like, I'm all about the efficiency is the pipes to where, because in the distillery building, you don't want bins and turns unnecessary because it's just a pocket that you can have bacteria grow and cause contamination issues. So your big thing is to lay out your piping so that everything is clear lines or easy to be cleaned. And so it gives us opportunity to do that part first and then put the building around it and the architect can make it look good. But I'm more worried about where are those top lines. So isn't so that, Sherry, sorry, go ahead, Nick. I was going to say, just because you two are both smarter than me. Uh, so I want to ask a question. <laughs> this means that, um, because we're starting off with the forethought of technology and new techniques, um, new, new pre-blending ideas, all this stuff, you know, when a whiskey distillery that's new, that's uh, sourcing whiskey, contract distilling, when they shift to their own juice, there's sometimes there's a big, big transition that happens. Wow. Like it is massive. Sometimes mm -hmm. it's not a great transition. And sometimes people notice. Flavor Exactly. So we're what we're talking about here is going to allow us to launch a whiskey that is to our standards from the get-go, correct? Or at least increase correct. those odds. I think it's going to be better. I do you know, too. <laughs> no, people, I know it's going to be better. This, absolutely. People watching <laughs> no, this, no. like we had a sales meeting. We had a sales meeting last year, and we were all given like these super secret little samples of the stuff that's being contract distilled for us, and it was only like two years old. I do not like drinking whiskey that's not old enough to watch TV alone. Like I, I talk about that all the time. This stuff is delicious. Like it is so good right now. And that's definitely like your, your thumbprint on there. So I, I'm so excited. I'm kind of kidding, but no, we do have the opportunity to really take off out the door. And I think we're also coming in at a time and the weavers are allowing, you know, take a lot of the crafty stillers, uh, and I respect them for it. They decided to go with the pot still method mm -hmm. because we're seeing our potential growth and where this story is going to go. We're going with a continuous column still, mm -hmm. which your major distilleries have. And you can just get a more consistent product. You can get that consistency. But I don't want consistency to sound boring. We need a consistent distillate. Mm -hmm. Because where we place it in the warehouse, what kind of barrels we put in, do we go in and finish? There are so many things that we still get to play with. But you have to start with good juice. You've That's got important, to start right? with so good. A pot still gives you variance from like batch to batch to batch. And you've yes. got so much more control of the column. It's slower so you, you as want, well, pot stills. And you low want the, the other variables to be something mm -hmm. you can absolutely control and monitor. Mm -hmm. You don't want to 
just wind up with what you got. Yeah. That, that, that's the way I see it. I think you want to start with that, that place consistent. And you can pretty well control it. But when it comes to maturation, so much is dependent on your wood inventory, how hot it got that summer, that you're still going to have a lot of variables that you still are managing that you're still bringing together, but you don't want to start out and be managing that plus three, four different kind of flavored whiskeys out there on top of it. So we want to go in with that consistency. But you guys, how excited are you, everybody watching, to now that you've kind of, this this also is kind of unprecedented to get this, I, I want to say like kind of background behind the scenes information. And that's what this show is all about um, before you can even visit this part of our distillery that you're going to know that this is behind all of that and the intention and the, the, the forethought, the planning, the years and years of experience, you know, in, in whiskey as a whole, as it's been an entity in the world and in your uh, career and lifetime and what's happening now, all the modernizations that you're going to get to walk this tour eventually and see the production side of our distillery in person. You're going to have heard about these things. That's what I think is so cool. Like what distillery can talk about this before you can even walk inside of it to see it. And you're going to know, Oh, under where I'm standing, she was intentional about the pipes under the floor. You know? oh, yeah. That's really cool for whiskey nerds. Let me tell you where, cause that's what people are going to think about knowing yeah. this, that, yeah. you know, the reason why, that's why I'm so excited. I can't wait to step inside the building because I'm going to know where you put the still, where you put all, you know, tanks and things. You were, it, it was intentional. It wasn't that, you know, we're four roses and it's been here since however, when, and we've had to modernize around it and figure out how to make it work for the volume. Everything is intentional. And that's very, very cool. Well, you know, when we got out here, one of the questions was, you know, Heritage Hall, which is going to be our visitor center. It's got such a high roof line about putting the distillery in there. And <laughs> I said, we could. But it's going to make us retrofit. It's going to make us put the pipe in to fit the building. Interesting. We're much better off to use this because it's going to make such a great visitor center, such mm -hmm. a unique building. And then us lay out our pipe and build the building around it. Because the charm of that for the uh, consumer at Heritage Hall, which will be our visitor center, is going to be so much more fun. And then correct piping into the distillery building. I love that. I love that. But it was the example of we're designing all that in. And if we'd started in that building, we may have given up some of that. I, I think the industry as a whole has probably not paid any attention to warehousing because it's so passive. Mm -hmm. It's like, oh, what's the big deal? Or you they know, think it's passive. <laughs> yes, they think. Well, if, they just think the whole construction is, but you've got to go in there. And the way you load a warehouse with barrels, then every time you get ready to take barrels out, we call them dump, and that often we get bungho and dumping but, um, <laughs> in the industry. But when you That's take terms. the barrels out, if you take some off on the left side, then you need to take some off on the right side. Right. When you enter whiskey, you put in and you do. So we'll also, on the nerdy stuff, we'll have charts about how many barrels we have on per floor. It'll be analyzed. So we will always be loading those warehouses to where that, that structural integrity is taken care of. Because if you start loading out uh, and, and I've experienced some to where the way the barrel warehouses were loaded, they were loaded in the first floor, then the second floor, then the third floor, then the fourth. What happens is your youngest comes out on the bottom mm -hmm. and it kind of comes back to what you were talking about, Nick, it's when the industry went down, then we had excess barrel warehouse space. They pulled just by age. So what you ended up is you had your bottom floor basically empty and weight up top. Mm. Oh, goodness. Wow. And it's like, threw all the integrity off. So now when we load our first warehouse, I'll be almost doing in quadrants. I'll do probably three ricks, three rows. Then I'll move to the other side and do three. Then I'll go upstairs and just, so I will spread ours out. Once we get several warehouses, 
this will get easier. But on this first one, we are going to have to space that warehouse out so that we have got a blend of maturing whiskey from the first floor and the seventh. But it has to be done in such a way that we've got that uh, structural integrity of the building held. I, I got to say, it's so impressive to first to, to work in a company with so many smart women who are just leading the way. The two of you, <laughs> absolutely among those. Um, but Sherry, like you, are you kidding me? Is that an award back there for like oh, whiskey rep of the year? <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, <laughs> say, I, I don't think I've even told you about this. I read an article usually the last week or a few days ago about whiskey webs. And this is a concept oh, yeah. that sounds fairly new. It's very similar to coffee rings and analyzing coffee rings, where when oh, you have when you have dissolved solids in a solution, and then you allow that solution to evaporate in a controlled environment, it leaves a very specific pattern. And you can actually read that pattern, you can analyze it, and you can find um, consistencies within those patterns. So it's a way now that people are using uh, to identify almost like a fingerprint different whiskeys from different distilleries. And I thought, this is crazy. And it looks beautiful. They all, each fingerprint looks like a snapshot of space at some galaxy. Like, <laughs> oh, this is gorgeous. So I sent it to Sherry. <laughs> I said, have you heard about this? This would be really cool to get our, our whiskey like analyzed. She said, yeah, I read that yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> like you're still on top of it. Like you have so much history. You, if anybody has a right to some entitlement of like how to do this, it's you, but you're still on top of emerging ideas and technologies and techniques. And it is inspiring and it's so cool to see. Well, I appreciate that. That's the one thing though. I think I always go back to my nosy, curious, whatever you call that word is, I always know there's a better way. Let's test this. That is an exciting part to me is to never be static. And, and, but know the things that you stick to. And, but when we test these things, they're very controlled, they'll be analyzed, and you don't make some crazy step without analyzing this, giving it time, but you're continually testing. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you know, but there's a, it's a single barrel warehouse. They've left a couple of the stalls, so one of them, it, on the name of the stall door, it says Sherry's Barrels. <laughs> I love that. And Yeah, and so that's where I get to play around. So I will always, you know, I'll always be wanting to do that. I'll always want to. So awesome. That's so awesome. Thank you so much, Sherry. This was not just, I mean, selfishly, these are the discussions I've always wanted to have with you. And I, I, I think I write down things and we got to go a little deep when we were waiting for dinner in New York in January. We went, <laughs> we had our like moment by the coat check and went, yeah. we got nerdy about, you know, the yeast versus the mash bill versus the barrel. We went and Victoria was saying, she goes, y'all are crazy. <laughs> that was fun. But Love this it. is such a beautiful gift um, that really you just gave, of course, the gifts that you give are never ending to the whiskey world, but to fans of whiskey, to whiskey nerds, to fans of Uncle Nearest, having this unprecedented access to kind of behind the scenes with you, um, your philosophy on what makes whiskey whiskey and what is important and what is relevant. And um, it, it's just, this was amazing. And I'm so appreciative of your time and that we could all do this together. Yeah, thank you so much, Sherry. I hope I didn't ramble too much. But Never. Your ramblings are everybody's gold. Are you kidding me? <laughs> I guarantee everybody at home is going to be like, yeah. honey, shush, she's talking. <laughs> this is only part one, Sherry. I hope yes. you understand that. Yeah. Like, yes. We yeah. expect this every week. <laughs> down the rabbit hole with Sherry Moore. <laughs> Brought to you by Uncle And Dears. I will go down it. I'll go down <laughs> it. We can talk about slop. We haven't hit slop. We uh, haven't burned uh, the charcoal. We've got uh, so much. Okay, so I want to know more about cement. What My you're God. saying is you're going to come back on the show then. <laughs> I've got some nerdy questions. Yay! Okay, so we yeah. will, for all of the listeners and the viewers... We're going to take a poll on who wants Sherry to come back again and what, which rabbit hole. We'll suggest a few rabbit holes and we'll do that together. There we go. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, thank you again so much. Um, this was All Things Nearest and uh, you can find us every Monday 
all over the internet on the Uncle Nearest Brand channels. And we were with the amazing and the incredible Sherry Moore of Uncle Nearest. And Nick, thank you so much for doing this with me. And uh, we are keeping ourselves busy and connected to our to our fans and our drinkers uh, while we're all at home. We appreciate yep. it. Stay safe out there. Bye, Sherry. Bye-bye. <laughs> This was All Things Nearest. Tune in next week for more stories from your favorite Uncle Nearest brand stewards. This is a Spirit of Rock Network show. To check out all of our shows, visit spiritofrockpods.com. That's spiritofrockpods with an S.com. Thanks for listening.